listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. Today is a historic day, the kickoff of the 2017 National Week of Repentance. Honored that you would be joining us, whether you're here live or whether you're joining us on the live stream. I have in my hand the action guide. This is one of the keys to what's going to be a meaningful week for you. This is what puts us on the same page with literally thousands of other people around the nation. And the beauty is you don't have to get on a plane You don't have to get onto a train. You don't have to travel anywhere to be part of this nationwide movement of people calling out to the Lord. Last November was the first time in history that people from all different 50 states, all different territories of the United States participated in an entire week of calling out to the Lord, self-examination, praying, reflecting, and going through the scriptures and asking God, Lord, make me ground zero in the hope and the change that needs to happen in our nation. And this particular week is no different. In fact, I think it's going to go even beyond the reach of what we expected. There's a live stream again this evening at 6 p.m., and it's not too late to invite your friends. It's not too late. They can go to weekofrepentance.com, and everything is free. How about that? Everything is absolutely free. This is a real movement, and we mean it. Be faithful. Hold fast. Be zealous and repent. Be faithful, hold fast, be zealous and repent. Those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. But they're more than that. They're not just the words of Jesus to the church in the book of Revelation in some historic past. They're also the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to each and every one of us today, especially at this particular time in history. There are seven churches in the book of Revelation, and Jesus has words for each and every one of them. And seven times, Jesus says this particular phrase after addressing each of the churches. I'm going to look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. That's the first time that it's mentioned. But this particular phrase is used seven times, and we would do well to listen to it today. Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, the Spirit of God, says to the churches. Now, most of us have two ears, so we can listen twice as much as we talk. Today, we live in a day and age where it's especially important to pay attention to what is it that God might be saying to the United States? What is it that God might be saying to you? It's very easy to talk about the problems in our nation at a 50,000-foot level, at a very high level that's so far removed that it doesn't really do us any practical good. But what I want to do is look at a particular passage of Scripture that will help us understand the problem and the solution to what we're experiencing in this nation and what people might be experiencing in other nations. In fact, whenever a group of believers are experiencing difficulty and hardship, there is a necessary response that is found in the Bible. But before I get there, let me make this statement absolutely clear. The United States of America is in the midst of a massive humility crisis. We are experiencing a massive 
humility crisis, a lack of humility. And the only thing that has a chance of turning it around, solving the crisis, is a massive, genuine movement of repentance around our nation, beginning with God's people. Beginning with God's people, the church. You see, I I want to make this really clear. I think it could be said of the American church in the 21st century, and I say this respectfully and cautiously, but I think this might resonate with you as well. In many instances, many of us are trying to get other people to follow a Jesus we're not following very closely ourselves. And so we've become part of the problem when we should actually be central to the solution. We're not the solution, ultimately speaking, but we are part of the solution because we have become part of the problem. There is a massive humility crisis in the United States of America, and I'm not talking about in the White House, I'm not talking about in the House of Representatives, I'm not talking about in the Senate, I'm talking first and foremost, primarily within the church, the house of God. Listen, you'll never be more like Jesus Christ than when you are humble. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, I'm humble, and you will find rest for your souls. Many people today in this nation, including God's house within the church, are very restless We're not experiencing and walking in the rest that comes from Almighty God because we're missing a key ingredient that must be central in the life of every single believer. Turn with me to one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, one of the most frequently quoted when there's trouble and hardship at a national level, but one of the verses that is most frequently taken out of context and misunderstood. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. One of the most frequently quoted verses in all of the Bible will actually begin in verse 13. And you see, if we within the church misquote Second Chronicles 7, 13, and 14, if we don't understand Second Chronicles 7, 13, and 14, and we don't have a chance of applying what it's teaching us today. If we don't understand what God is trying to say to his people today, then we don't have a chance of seeking the Lord, drawing near to him, and asking him to solve the problems that I think in many instances we're part of creating. Second Chronicles chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, God himself is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he says this, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locust to devour the crop, or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. This is an amazing passage of scripture that often when it's quoted, we launch into, we need to pray for the nation. Listen, 2 Chronicles 7, 14 is not a verse 
appealing to us for intercession. Second Chronicles 7.14 is not an appeal for intercession. It is an appeal from Almighty God to his people for humility and repentance. God himself is letting his people know that there are times, there are instances, there are moments when he becomes the problem because God's people have become the problem. You see, when God's people become the problem, God becomes the bigger problem. And when God's people are part of the problem and God becomes the bigger problem, God's people need to become the solution so that God can be the ultimate solution. There are moments and instances in the course of life where it's not the devil who is our problem. Spiritual warfare 101 is to recognize who is it that is opposing me. Because even the youngest of believers can resist the devil every single time and win. But nobody has ever resisted God and won. It's a lot of talk these days about the resistance. But I think in most instances, that resistance is misdirected. We don't understand who it is that we're resisting. And if we're resisting God when he's trying to get our attention, resistance is futile. See, in natural warfare, when it comes to nations, there's talk today about war. Potential war of such a cataclysmic nature that perhaps we've never seen it before, even though we've seen some pretty cataclysmic wars in the history of the world. But the first thing that you and I need to understand and be able to identify is who is our enemy, and you don't want God to be your enemy. We don't want God to be our enemy in the United States of America because resistance to God is an exercise in futility. Now, let me say this to to really make this clear from the onset. 2 Chronicles 7, 13, and 14, first and foremost, the original context, it's spoken to the nation of Israel, the only theocracy that the world has ever known. The United States is not a theocracy. Can I get an amen for that? We're not a theocracy. We are not the rule and reign of God on the earth through mere mortals. That's what a theocracy is. The nation of Israel was, for a time, a theocracy. The nation of Israel today is not what it was back in the day. It's not a theocracy today, the way it was for a limited time, for a limited purpose, with a limited people. As it was when this was written, 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. And so there's not a one-to-one correlation between what God was telling the people of Israel in that theocracy and what God is telling the people of the United States, which is not a theocracy. So we have to be very careful that we don't poorly divide the scriptures, that we don't misinterpret what the Bible is saying here. Now, at the same time, There are people who would look at 2 Chronicles 7, 13, and 14 and say that has nothing to do, has no modern relevance, and they would easily dismiss it today. And we have to be careful about that because that's another extreme response, and extremes are often very dangerous. What we want to do, what we always want to do when we read the Bible is we want to walk away with what is timeless. What does this teach us about the nature and the character of God? What does this teach us about the nature and character of people? What is it that is transferable centuries later? What can we learn about God? What can I learn about myself? What can we learn about difficulty and hardship? And what can we learn 
about solutions. There are many people today who are simply recognizing the problems in our nation. And you know, recognizing a problem does nothing to solve it. It's easy to be a talking head, whether on television or on a platform or in a church, and shake our heads and say, look at how difficult things are. Look at how terrible and divided things are. That's only good in terms of the beginning of saying, well, let's solve the problem that we see. Something that's timeless that we need to understand from 2 Chronicles 7, 13, and 14 is this. God is humble, and he finds humility in his people incredibly attractive. In fact, if we were to turn to James chapter 4, verse 6, or 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, two different writers of Scripture, they reference Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, which says, God himself mocks proud mockers. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I don't know about you, but I want as much of God's grace as possible. Don't you? I want as much of God's grace as possible. And therefore, how much humility is enough when it comes to experiencing God's grace? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, people might say, well, that's grace. There's nothing we can do about it. No, that's a misunderstanding of grace. Grace is that God tells us ahead of time what we can expect, what he's like. And there are plenty of things in the Bible where God says, if you do this, here's what you can expect from me. If you do that, here's what you can expect from me. It's the undeserved favor of God that he reveals to us his nature and his character and his ways and his methodology. And you and I need to understand that we're never more attractive to Jesus than when we are walking in humility. God always opposed the proud and always gave grace to the humble. We see that in 2 Chronicles 7, verses 13 and 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. What is timeless about that, even though that applied to the nation of Israel first, we see that as a timeless principle throughout Scripture. He said it to Cain. In the book of Genesis, if you do what's right, God said, will you not be acceptable? We see it in James chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5 and throughout all of the scriptures that God finds humility incredibly attractive and he finds pride, resistance to God incredibly offensive. We have not yet come to the point as followers of Jesus Christ in the United States of America where we recognize that we might be part of the problem. And I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about, with all respect, within the house of God. Many churches need to undergo a revolution. In fact, I think we're in need of a second American revolution, one that is not fought with conventional weaponry, one that is characterized by humility and courage. Humility and courage. If you're a pastor or an elder or a Christian leader, you need to listen, I need to listen as a pastor. 
Our churches exist for one purpose and one purpose only, to point people to Jesus Christ and to be operating in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we're effective toward that end. And if a church is recognized and known for anything other than being a house of prayer for all nations, that church, that group of people is missing God's call for humility. You see, prayer is one of the fundamental ways that we demonstrate dependence upon God. And dependence upon God is humility. A non-praying church is an oxymoron. A non-praying Christian, an oxymoron. God's call in your life is the same call in my life. I didn't get a deeper, higher calling just because I'm a pastor. I got the same calling that you received in your life to receive Jesus as my savior and my master and to commit myself to a lifestyle of repentance. That's Jesus' words when he first comes on the scene in Mark chapter one, verse 16. Repent and keep repenting. Believe and keep believing. We accept Jesus Christ for the very first time as our savior. There has to be a moment in your life There was a moment in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you accepted him for the very first time. And at that moment, all of your sins were forgiven. You were brought into a relationship with God. You were brought to life. Even though you might be alive physically, you're dead spiritually until you give your life to Christ as your Savior. But that's the beginning of a lifestyle that now resists the flesh. You want to talk about the resistance? Let's talk about that for a moment. God's calling on the Christian is to resist the flesh, to resist the world, to resist the devil. If you need some encouragement, 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 5, is some great teaching there about resist the devil and he'll flee from you. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, submit yourselves to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and in due time he'll lift you up. Humility is incredibly attractive to God and you're never more humble than when you're a person who's walking closely with him as demonstrated by your prayer life. Prayer is to be dependent upon God. Prayer in your family, prayer in your personal life, prayer in the house of God, in the church, among God's people. What else does God have to do in our nation to get our attention? Listen, he has a multiplicity of means at his disposal, at his fingertips to get our attention. I think we just need to have the courage and the humility to recognize that it's time. Our nation is long overdue for a mighty, true, genuine movement of the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about counterfeit garbage. We've seen counterfeits. We need a real movement. In fact, we need real movements of the Spirit of God, genuine spiritual awakenings around this nation. How about if it begins in your life? How about if it begins in this church? How about if it begins in your church, in your house? I think for far too long, we've been waiting for hope and change to be brought about by a politician. Listen, if our problems fundamentally are spiritual, and they are, there's no political solution, there's no financial solution, there's no military solution, 
There's no economic solution. In fact, all of the problems that we're seeing in our nation have at its root a spiritual problem. If it was true for God's people with the nation of Israel, I think we would do well to learn a lesson today in the United States where we have so many churches, so many people who say they're following Jesus Christ. True change does not begin in the White House. I think we've been waiting for true change to begin in the White House. If a mere mortal could bring about the change that was needed and is needed, then there would be no purpose for the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the real agent of change. Jesus is the one who can change your life, who can change your family, who can change the church, and who can change the nation. See, Second Chronicles 7, 14 is an if-then statement. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, that will get my attention. Then I'll hear their prayers, forgive their sin, and heal their land. I don't know if you've realized this, but our nation needs a whole lot of healing today. We need racial healing. We need economic healing. We need military healing. We need moral healing. The opioid epidemic in this nation is out of control. Teen suicide at the highest rate it's been in a number of years because we have allowed ourselves to be marginalized God's people. We've allowed ourselves to be bullied and put into a corner to sit down and to shut up about the solution to all of our nation's problems, which is a mighty movement of the Spirit of God that points people to the person and the works of Jesus Christ. Teens in the schools need to know that Jesus is the answer. Businessmen and businesswomen need to know that Jesus is the answer. And that's why I say the great need in the United States at this particular time is for a second American revolution. One not characterized by arrogance and fear, but one that is characterized by humility and courage. Humble courage with God's people. Meeting with God, spending time with God, and asking God, God, forgive me for waiting for somebody else to be the change that needs to happen in this nation. See, our nation is the sum of individual lives just like yours and just like mine. It's the accumulation of houses of worship just like this one. Houses of worship, all different denominations, all different sizes, all different makeups, but with the same Jesus who died on the cross for the forgiveness of everyone's sins, black, yellow, red, and white, we're all precious in God's sight. Jesus, fully human, fully God, It was necessary that he came in the flesh so that there could be a substitute sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. And the beautiful thing about this particular week, this particular day, and all that's going to happen throughout this week is that there are people in real time taking this entire week, fasting, praying, setting aside time that they would otherwise spend on a meal, 
setting aside time that they would otherwise spend on a smart device that's dumbed us down, setting aside time that they would otherwise spend on television and dedicating it to the Lord and saying, Lord, start the spiritual awakening that needs to happen in this nation in my life. That's what the National Week of Repentance is about. Just be really careful that you understand that just because it's national doesn't mean it's for other people to bring it about. And it's not for any of us to bring it about. A real move of God has to be a real move of God. But please don't make the mistake that many have made thinking that, well, it's up to God. I have no say in the matter. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then... It's time that the if become a then among God's people. It's time that we stop trying to put a political band-aid on a spiritual issue in our nation. We have enough churches, we have enough Christians in this nation, many more than they had during Jesus' day, during his entire three-year or so ministry. Could it be that we're part of the problem and that we are not humbling ourselves before God not seeking God, not repenting and forsaking our own sins. Many of us need a revolution in how we're using our time. One of the greatest things that you could do this week is to look at your usage of time and take it back. Many of us are too busy doing God knows what and he does know. Too distracted, too divided, too independent. You know, one of the things that God can do to a nation that has begun to trust in the blessings of God rather than the God who gives his blessings, one of the things that God can do is bring that nation to its knees, literally speaking. You will come to the point in your life where you'll come to your knees, you'll get on your knees one way or another. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. What is the Spirit of God saying to you at this particular time in history? I think his word is this. You need to simplify your life. You need to stop doing all the things that you have said are important, and you need to begin to be about the Lord's business. You need to be a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl who takes back your own life and surrenders it to the Lord. See, the idea of being a living sacrifice, nobody forces you to do it. Your pastor can't do it for you. Your church can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Your children, you can't do it for your parents. You have a say, as Romans 12 says, in whether or not you're going to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It is time that you make being a living sacrifice the number one priority in your life, the number one priority in your family, the number one priority in our family as a church. And in your family, in your church, this needs to happen at a widespread scale, whether you're in Alaska, whether you're in Guam, whether you're in Florida, California, Puerto Rico, Washington, D.C. This week gives us all an opportunity to be on the same page together, calling out to the Lord and to actually do what 2 Chronicles 7.14 says that God's people need to do when God's people have become the problem, causing God to become the bigger problem. God's people need to become the solution so that God himself is the ultimate solution. 
We have not yet begun to respond the way we need to respond in the body of Christ. We've got to take back our time while we still have it. You have the ability to take back your life while you still have it, this side of eternity. You have a decision to make, and that decision is right now. What are you going to do with the rest of today? What are you going to do with the rest of this week? Will you or will you not be part of this movement of people around the nation? The awakening that needs to happen in this nation begins with you. It begins with me. It begins with your family. It begins with my family. It begins in this church. It begins in every single church in this nation. We need to humble ourselves. Very easy to recognize the problems in other people's lives. Start recognizing the problems in your life. Jesus said it this way. Remove the log in your own eye and then you will have the ability to remove the speck in your brother or your sister's eye. All of us are recovering hypocrites. Every single one of us is a recovering hypocrite. Jesus doesn't have someone other than a recovering hypocrite to speak through, to move through. We see that example again and again in Scripture. Of course you've got junk in the trunk. You've got stuff in your past. We all do. But God has a bright future for you. He has a bright future for me, for anybody, everybody who will simply humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he will lift you up so that you could be a mouthpiece, that you could share with other people the good news of salvation and forgiveness of sin that is found in the person and the works of Jesus. Ephesians chapter four, verse 15. Ephesians four, 15 says this, we are called, you are called to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. I think for many of us in the church, we've done a very good job of communicating truth, but we've done a very poor job of communicating it with love. It's not just truth that God calls us to proclaim. He calls us to communicate truth with love the way Jesus did. See, you have to get over this understanding, this idea. You have to get over this idea, this false perception that if I'm nice to somebody, I'm agreeing with their behavior. I'm agreeing with their beliefs. That's not true at all. Think about Jesus. Nice to the woman at Jacob's well even though she was a sinner in need of forgiveness. Jesus, talking to the woman caught in adultery, he said, go and sin no more. He didn't approve of her behavior. He called her behavior out, but he was nice to her. In fact, Jesus had a reputation of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was his reputation. And so Jesus would ask you today, he'd ask me, where are your tax collectors and sinners? We need them. If we're walking closely with Jesus, we will have the kinds of people in our lives that Jesus associated with. At the cross, the judgment of God clearly proclaimed that sin needed to be paid for. And on that same cross, the mercy and the love of God clearly proclaimed, for God loved the world so much that he gave 
his one and only uniquely brought forth son, Jesus, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Humility. We don't even know what it looks like. We're so used to talking at each other that we don't understand what it is to listen to each other. Most of us on social media has conditioned us for this. Most of us, we're waiting for an opportunity as we're listening. We're waiting for an opportunity. When is the segue when I can tell them about me, 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 me? That's not listening. That's not empathizing with where somebody else is at. God does not call us to talk at each other. He calls us to listen to each other, to empathize with each other, to love each other, to consider others better than ourselves. Philippians chapter two says, consider others better than yourself. When we consider others as equal to ourselves, we're actually not going far enough. You're not agreeing with someone's behavior or someone's beliefs when you're being polite. You're simply being polite. Jesus was polite to those who needed forgiveness, those who knew they needed forgiveness. You can be polite to people as well. You can be kind to people in your family. You can be kind to your neighbors, kind to people at the workplace and let them see the love of Jesus in this world, in this day and age where arrogance and fear are running amok. That second American revolution, bring it on. With the humility of Jesus Christ in your life and in your family and in your house of worship. If it's going to be, we need to start acting as if it's up to you and it's up to me because we actually have much more of a say in the movement of God who tells us ahead of time what he's looking for. There's a good possibility that if you have not humbled yourself before God, the way you need to humble yourself, you're not experiencing the grace of God the way you could and you would experience it. James chapter four, first Peter five, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, What about those who humble themselves? You'll experience the grace, the undeserved favor of God. None of us deserve it. We're not earning God's goodness by doing that. We're simply giving God what he says he's looking for. And in his goodness, he tells us, listen, I'm not obligated to be nice when you do what's right, but because I'm good and my love endures forever, I'm telling you that when you walk with me, when you honor me, I will honor you. You've got an index card that we handed out here. For those of you who are watching by live stream, we gave index cards to everybody here, and you can do this right where you are right now. What is it that God has been saying to you? What is it? Maybe it's a sin issue. Maybe it's a independence issue, not depending upon God. What is it that God is saying to you? I encourage you to write it down on that card and begin to come down right here, right to the center of the stage and lay it down before the feet of Jesus. Lay it down before the feet of Jesus. You come on up. Maybe it's a sin of the nation. Maybe it's a sin in your family. 
Whatever it is that you need strength for, write it down on the card. Come here. If you're watching on the live stream, you write it down and you're calling out to the Lord and saying, Lord, in laying this before you, I'm asking for your help. I'm asking for your forgiveness. I'm asking for your deliverance. I'm asking for your healing. This is a week, the National Week of Repentance is an opportunity for reconciliation. It's an opportunity to extend and to receive forgiveness. It's an opportunity for wholeness. It's an opportunity for humility. How much of God's grace do you want in your life? I don't know about you, but I want a little more. And therefore, it's an opportunity for us to discover or rediscover for the very first time how attractive humility is before Almighty God. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.